So, for those of you who don't know, whenever I approach a two-parter, I always approach it with the mentality of I don't know if I'm going to do one or two episodes about it. Uh, of, of my episodes, obviously. And thus far, obviously, I've been doing two episodes for each two-parter. The, the determining factor is I'll watch the first part, the first episode, and be like, okay, how much do I have to say about that first episode? And if it's enough you know, to qualify for its own episode, then I'll go ahead and split it up into two chunks. Um, here's my notes for Year of Hell Part 1, and here's the rest of them. So, yeah, I, I think that qualifies. Uh, that being said... There's a lot to say about this episode from a meta perspective because it, it, there's some weird things going on. Let me, let me get one thing out of the way really quick. Year of Hell Part 1, and I make this distinction. Part 1, not Part 2, is among my favorite uh, Voyager episodes. It's, it's in the top ten up there with some other really great episodes like I Forget the Name of It, where Zimmerman and Doctor are together, The Thaw, Scorpion, you know, etc., and uh, some other episodes whose names I also can't think of. Uh, the one with Harry in the future comes to mind. So, really, really good stuff. I think the best reason to explain why that is, though, is because it wasn't supposed to be this way. Now, some of this is conjecture, and some of this is defined fact, and some of the interviews disagree with what some of the other interviews say, so... We're entering the realm of speculation here, but so what I'm going to put forth is my own theory and thoughts on the matter based on what we do know and based on what has been said by the creators of the show. We do know definitively that Year of Hell was supposed to be the season ender instead of Scorpion. Scorpion was shoved in uh, because of public outcry at the time of Unity and the extreme popularity of First Contact, which made the executives at Paramount at the time say, you're going to do a Borg story. And so they kind of had to throw Scorpion together. It's kind of ironic, given how little time they had to prepare and work on Scorpion, uh, they did a surprisingly good job of it, even though the story did have some very serious logical loopholes in it. But that's Voyager in a nutshell, isn't it? As I've always said, though, if you're going to have a stupid plot, if you and make it a really good episode on top of that stupid plot, then I'm a lot more okay with it than I normally would be. Which uh, is Year of Hell Part 1 in a nutshell, because this episode, this very concept, has ridiculously huge flaws in its, in its, in its overall plot. Uh, two really, really big ones that I'll be covering as we go through this. But let me get back to the meta aspect, the behind-the-scenes aspect. So originally, Year of Hell was supposed to be the season ender. And more than that. It is my belief, based on everything that they were talking about, and the way that the writers were discussing the interview, and what they wanted to do with the thing, and blah blah blah, and the way the episode is constructed, that this was literally supposed to be a Year of Hell, not a two-parter of Hell. That is speculation. What is not speculation is it was originally supposed to be much longer than two parts. It was originally supposed to be, uh, the, 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 the bare minimum that he wanted was four-parter of Hell. And that was obviously pushed back as well, because, as I talked about before, the idea of doing more than a two-parter is something that, uh, for some reason, has always been shot down, even though they tried multiple times in Voyager 2. This is not the last time they'll try, too. So, uh, what we got is a the two-parter of Hell, and... Well, let's let's talk about some of the, the, the other consequences as a result of this. See, you might say, oh, well, they set this up back in uh, Displaced or whatever it was, the episode where Kess was in the future and talks about the Krenum and the temporal torpedoes. You'd actually be only partially correct there. The truth is, when they did that episode, the inspiration of the Krenum was so inspiring that that basically led to the idea of the year of hell. So it wasn't, didn't, it, they didn't put foreshadowing of something they intended to do, they put out an idea which was so engaging they decided to make it into a story. Now it still works, kinda, 
But I just thought I'd uh, mention that, which is actually interesting because I actually thought it was the opposite until I was reading up on this episode, so my apologies if I've said otherwise. Um, now, the other problem here, though, is... <laughs> the, as, as I kind of mentioned, this was not only supposed to be the season ender, but that was a point in time which Kess wasn't leaving the show when they were writing and building this episode. Uh, remember, all this work was happening in Season 3 when they were working on Year of Hell. Uh, not, obviously not the filming and, and, and actual uh, production work, but most of the baseline work of setting the scripts and the story and all that stuff was being done in Season 3. So Kess was still a member of the crew back there. It's actually really obvious. I'm going to skip ahead of my notes, as I almost always do, uh, in order to keep the flow of my thought going here, which is to say, watch this episode sometime and look at how Seven interacts with everyone with maybe two exceptions, and both of which are very obvious, I'm a Borg kind of lines, if you just replaced her with Kess, you wouldn't even have to change most of her lines. And the way she interacts with several of the crew members, most notably Tuvok, the whole uh, torpedo scene, the way she talks with Harry and Bellana, most of her presentation, especially given how small of a role she has in this episode, very much does feel like it was originally written for Kess, and that's because it was. This is, again, not speculation. This is fact. Uh, they basically just added in a few Borg lines and changed a few things around, and Jerry Ryan played it instead of uh, Jennifer Lyne. So... Interesting to note that, uh, but that is one of the problems with trying to do a continuity thing in television, especially in the 90s. Now, this is nowhere as near a problem uh, as it was then. Nowadays, it's much more common to have long-term effects and consequences of a story, uh, especially in television. Uh, and we've been seeing this a lot in more modern television, and I personally think that's great. That is, of course, just me and my opinion, but it is undeniable that there are huge risks for doing that, especially in the generation where this came out. I talked about this back in Displaced a little bit. There are certain things you simply cannot predict. You cannot look forward to. You cannot. You have to work around because a certain actor doesn't want to do the role or isn't going to be back or has been cut from the thing or maybe this went in this direction or maybe this writer screwed up here and so now you have to bounce around that. There's too many things to balance uh, in, in such a situation and it's very easy to screw up the attempt at actually making some kind of string continuity. But there's another side to this, another aspect to this, which I'm going to talk about here. Um, there's a term called Elseworlds. Now, when I refer to an Elseworlds, what I'm referring to as is a type of comic. One of the comic book types, which is, by definition, utterly unconnected to the main continuity, or any of the actual official continuities. It is completely self-contained, in other words. It has no connection to any comic other than its own story. Uh... Uh, Superman All-Stars is a good example of this. Uh, there's another one I'm trying to think of that I can't for some reason. There's a lot of my favorite stories uh, in DC especially are actually Elseworld stories. Now if I can explain why for a moment, the reason why uh, is could be best described as you don't have to adhere to any doctrine in those. You can write the characters and have long-term effects and have terrible things happen and good things happen and have actual changes and fundamental altering of the status quo for the characters and the setting because it's not connected to the continuity, so they don't have to police that. Now, I consider that to be an overall good thing, and yet, and yet, it is worth noting that the majority of Elseworld stories are crap. This is true with DC, Marvel, and Dark Horse, by the way. Dark Horse did a lot of Star Wars Elseworlds, uh, some of which are good. But, um, yeah, it is, it is in general, bulk-wise, again, this is my opinion and the opinion of other comic book people I talk with, so I'm only speaking for like eight people out here. But the majority of Elseworlds stories are garbage. 
percentage-wise. The ones that are good are the exceptions. Why is that? Well, it's about removal of limitations and doing things for their own sake, I think, is the best way to describe it. For example, you're doing an Elseworlds story about X-Men, and you can kill Wolverine. No, I mean, like, actually kill him. He's dead, yeah! So let's kill him! I've always wanted to kill Wolverine. And then let's make it so that Cyclops suddenly gets his sight back and doesn't have the I-beams. And Jean Grey is back from the dead, except not the Phoenix this time. And, and let's just toss out stuff. Yeah, go, go! You kind of see the problem there. Making long-term ramifications and consequences and continuity is, in my opinion, a good thing. But one thing I've never really gotten a chance to talk about before is its usage in moderation. I've always been a huge proponent of long-term consequences and things. Like, like the episode with the Doctor and, and the episode Real Life, which I got actually pissed off enough to cuss at. I, I st that wasn't scripted, by the way. That was totally... I didn't intend to say that. I was just so mad. That should have long-term consequences. And yet, and yet, the problem is it's still a double-edged sword because if you do too many changes all the time, that becomes the norm, doesn't it? It loses any impact or value. And you have to make sure you're not doing too extreme of a change or a consequence because that also kind of dulls you to the effect of other things. For example, if in the middle of... Uh, no, this is a fictional example. Let's say in the middle of, the year of Voyager, Tuvok dies... Uh, to a to a big blob of black goo, and then it just and then just everyone moves on with it. That would have almost no impact or consequence, or, or not not impact, no impact or emotional uh, factor to it, unless it was done very very carefully and very properly. Especially because it would be done. You, you get where I'm going with it. I'm, I'm talking about Tashiar. But the point is, <laughs> poor Tashiar. I can't. I'm, I'm going to talk about her eventually. The point is, if you do it, if you do it wrong, it's worse than not doing it at all. Is what I'm trying to say. I would rather Voyager didn't do long-term consequences and and continuity if they were going to do it wrong. Now that brings us to Year of Hell. Now, obviously, Year of Hell has no long-term impact or consequences whatsoever at all. I'm actually not going to talk about that here. That really comes up in part two. So I'm going to save that discussion for there. So bear with me. Next week we'll talk about the ending of this two-parter. Ham. There's a lot to talk about just with the ending of this two-parter. But the point is, what they do in this episode is a lot of stuff in quick succession. Now, in my opinion, in part one, they do do it well. But it occurred to me as I was watching it that they were, they were walking the tightrope the whole episode. Tuvok being blinded is probably the most severe consequence of this episode. And there's, I have two thoughts on that. Now, first thought, uh, for those of you who don't know, he was originally intended to be more than just blinded. He was intended to be fully crippled, lose a leg, etc. He was supposed to be just brought down to nothing. They decided against that for production reasons. In other words, it would be too hard to mask and have the prosthetics and whatnot. I feel if they had gone forward with it, though, that would have been a mistake from a writing perspective. Because, again, it would have been too much. It would have been slipping too much on one side or the other of the tightrope and not maintaining that balance of impacting but not too impacting, not not over the top, and of course not too much of it. You, you know, it, it, too much and the wrong type both are bad things here, right? That brings us to the other point, though. The ship itself has the most consequences happen to it. Uh, by the way, huge props to the uh, 
to foundation imaging for doing great stuff with the CGI of the ship externally, and amazing stuff with the several Krenim ships they had to design, and the ships of the, I forget what they're called, and the uh, and the time ship. They did some really good work with this episode is what I'm trying to say. But also huge uh, props to the set designers and the directors for really managing to make the normal sets look as destroyed as they were supposed to. They did a great job with that. A lot of debris added, different lighting techniques. They actually scattered some charcoal here and there. It was really good stuff. But anyways, getting back to my point, the ship's consequence of it actually getting worse and them losing bulkheads and losing uh, chunks of the ship, of having to abandon sickbay entirely, you know, that worked because it was a gradual, continual acclimation showing the progression of the ship taking steadily more and more damage. Rather than, let's to, to explain a way that this would have been bad, let's say the ship is doing fine and, and relatively, you know, just, oh god, we're shaking and all that stuff, and then all of a sudden, BAM, and now we've lost the aft quarter of the ship. That wouldn't have had nearly the same impact as the ship slowly degrading in quality over the course of the episode, which also ties into the main theme of this episode, which is, yeah, for lack of a better way to put this, um the degrading effect of time, which I'll talk about a little bit more in the second part, or admittedly. I also want to, uh, before I go forward, I also want to mention one thing about Kurtwood Smith, who plays Anorax. He nails the part. I literally just finished talking about this back in uh, Revulsion, about how a good guest star can really help sell a role. Kurtwood Smith really, really sells Anorax uh, to such an extreme degree. I'll be mentioning a few things he does well here. He has more of a role in part two, and I'll be talking about a lot more there. But I just wanted to give him huge, huge praise for, for really selling the part. So, let's go ahead and start talking about episode uh, stuff in the episode itself. So, weaponized time. Weaponized time is an interesting thing to talk about, and I could probably talk about it for a while. I'm going to try and limit myself here. But... Those, er, anyone who has tam tampered with fiction at all probably is aware of the butterfly effect. The idea of you change one thing and the, the significance of the ripples are so huge that that one tiny change changes things on a grand scale, right? Very simple, simple concept. Not necessarily proven. There's some debate on that, especially when it comes to time, since we don't actually have the ability to travel through time. Well, except for me, because I'm the doctor. But the point being... Most people don't have the ability to travel through time, so most people just look at it as a theoretical. And even with that, though, it's easy to see how that works because it's simple logical progression. People have written stories about one change having colossal effects because that one change happened to affect this, which happened to affect that, etc., etc. And it's easy to see where the dominoes fly. Indeed, actually, one of my favorite uh, theoretical you know, butterfly effect stories is actually... Command and Conquer Red Alert, uh, a story I'll be talking about at some point. I forget when it goes in rel relation to this episode. I've already recorded uh, the episode about that. But you'll be seeing that one of these Fridays this month. Um, because they go back and they change one thing. Now, in this case, the one thing is killing a guy, but ultimately that is a fairly small effect. And yet the removal of Hitler at the early part of his career from, from that timeline meant that Germany had no one charismatic or strong enough to bring it up to a degree of militarization, which meant that there was absolutely nothing to curb the expansion of the Stalin Empire of the Soviet Union in the East and blah, 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 blah. You know, it's easy to see how the dominoes fall in that sake. Now, again, that's debatably not a small change, but at the same time, it really is when you think about it. I'm not condoning killing or anything like that. I'm usually very anti-death. But killing one person is usually not what you'd consider a very grand change to reality. Now, now that I've said that, consider what they have with the time ship, with Anorax's time ship. This is a ship that can only kill. 
again, I'm going to jump forward in my uh, in my notes here, but this is a ship whose only function is destroying. All it can do is erase something, or someone, or a large scale of whatever, from the timeline. So the minimum it can do is, is basically kill a guy. One guy. One colony. One species. Now I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. So, uh, Anorax is astonishingly sympathetic and engaging of a character for someone who is a megalomaniacal, genocidal madman. It's bizarre how likable he is for, for being literally completely out of his gourd. This is a guy who has wiped out speciesses. Plural. As in, imagine all of human history for the last however many years you want to debate it's been being wiped out like that. That's what this man has been doing multiple times. Think about that for a moment. Now imagine the impact it would have on a galactic superstructure to have a species wiped out. And now, granted, that's the biggest stuff he does, but even when he wipes out a colony, erasing everyone that was there... Now, see, you have to understand this, because the way this retroactively changes history is, is functional. It's not just like, this colony never existed. It's this colony and everyone on it, and all the things on it never existed. So all those people who are there who were once from another planet or came from another area or birthed on a different area or whatever, or the people who were actually born there, none of that ever existed. So you're erasing this and the five trillion ways it's connected to everything else that led to the creation and foundation of that colony. I mean, think about the scope of this. It's monumental. It's insane, actually, if I could be so blunt. And horrifying. Every now and again I'll see something in fiction which I feel like was not designed to be horrifying, yet very much is. Um, the the way the Abstergo over in Assassin's Creed uh, originally I thought was this until the series went on and I, it became obvious that no they really want you to be horrified by that. But this time weapon is definitely among those. At no point does anyone really stop to consider the true horror, at least in episode one, of what the time weapon means, and yet it's an absolutely horrifying concept because again this is a galactic superstructure. This is a galactic community. I guess is is the word I'm going for here. Think about that, I mean, I mean to, to bring this down, imagine, let's, let's use parallels to really bring this to home, okay? Let's imagine the galaxy is Earth. Bear with me, okay? So each given country is like a major quadrant of the galaxy, and each given state or city or whatever is basically like an entire empire on the galactic scale, okay? I know this isn't one-to-one, -one. don't give me that, just bear with me, okay? So imagine if you wiped out a city on Earth from history, never was founded, and all the people who were there were never born, just wiped out completely. Can you even begin to imagine how much of an impact that would have on literally everything else, on the whole of everything that's connected to that? Now, there are probably cases where you could wipe out a city and it wouldn't have a huge effect on the whole planet, but just speaking from here in the States, there is no city or town or village or thorpe that exists in the States that is not in some way connected to those around it. Not just in terms of people, but in terms of trade, in terms of connection, in terms of the way that the, the, the American uh, infrastructure was designed in order to connect all these. There's a reason we have such a road network of such stupid and ludicrous complexity that has been mapped over years and years and has been built over years and years of this pseudo-plan to expand west. You know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so imagine, like, taking out just even a small city like, well, I don't know, Auburn, California. 
pretty small thing. And yet doing that would have huge repercussions on Roseville and Sacramento and, and probably even Reno up to the north and just everything around that would utterly and fundamentally change because Auburn was never built and the people who were there were never born. I can't even begin to calculate how much of an impact taking out one town would have, possibly on a global scale. And now again, Auburn's a little town. What if you wiped out San Diego? What would that do? Seriously, how... <laughs> I mean, we're even talking to the modern... Imagine what would have happened in World War II if San Diego had never existed, right? Well, maybe some other place would have become the naval base because San Diego never existed. So, again, there's no cheating here. It's not like, well, then we'll build it. No, it never was built. It was erased from time. So, there's just this empty spot there that they never settled or never actually built into. And there has to be a reason why that never happened. And you can, and I'm, I'm just going to stop for a moment because I'm getting into really heavy temporal stuff. And I just realized that I, I should probably stop that. But seriously... The dominoes, plural, all expanding more or less infinitely in all directions from this. Why would anyone ever use a weapon like that? There's a hidden theme in this episode, uh, other than the obvious one of the, 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 the cost of time, basically. Uh, you know, the cost of time is obvious. We see what it does to Anorax in his personality. We see what it does, uh, literally, when he fires off the weapon. We see what it does to the ship over the course of the... Uh, I think it's like three months over the course of this episode, something like that. Um, you know, etc., etc. But the hidden quiet uh, theme here in this episode is... I, I, I'm trying to think how to phrase this without getting stupid. It's the same theme that was behind Call of Duty Modern Warfare and Modern Warfare 2. You know, the good Modern Warfares, as I like to call them. I, no offense to anybody who likes the modern ones, but in my opinion, those two were truly fantastic games. And I know a lot of people disagree with me on that, too. But ignoring any discussion about Call of Duty, the point is the theme of those games was very clear and very blunt and very in-your-face and at the same time very subtle and very human. It was the fact that modern war was wrong. Just plain wrong. And throughout the course of those two games, you, the hero, as, as whoever you're playing as, because you bounce around a little bit, constantly go out of your way to, to try and fix the situation. And that's the most horrifying thing about it. You're not a bad guy. You're not even part of the system. You are, you're not even like, oh, I will, I will do this horrible job because it is my orders. No, you are actively trying to save the world and fix things and make things better. And in so doing, you are making it worse because what you're doing it with, the tools you're using are warfare, modern warfare, and modern warfare is wrong. And the more you used killing and destruction in order to try and fix the world, the more the world broke. And that is the theme, the hidden theme of this episode, that the idea of using such a weapon and such an offensive mentality in order to try and make things better will never work. Think about this for a moment. Anorax has this whole speech that he gives to his second. I don't even remember his name. I don't even think he gives a, he gives the name of this episode. I could be wrong. Feel free to correct me. I know you guys love to correct me in the comments, especially UK. But he has a whole speech where he talks about how you know we we must all we, we have infinite time. Time has no meaning on us, and therefore we will have forever in order to be able to accomplish this goal. Forgive me for pointing this out, but no, you won't. Because again, the ship can only destroy. It can only take away from the substance of reality by erasing certain aspects of reality from existence. And that is all it can ever do. 
the only possible way. Now, I, this is probably going to sound like a duh to most of you, but think about this truly for a moment. Ignoring the obvious fact that eventually you will run out of things to take away, you are trying to restore something. And your method of trying to restore that something is by removing other things. Now, there's a degree of logic to that, admittedly. And yet, and admittedly, we don't find this out to episode two, but it, but it, it kind of, you'd think you would have figured this out early on when he tried to wipe out a certain enemy, and it turns out that that enemy had been, uh, had, had allowed for vaccinations to happen here, so these people would have actually been exposed to a virus, so they would actually have had uh, antibodies to it, you know, blah, 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 that whole thing. You would have think as soon as he realized that removing from the equation is not going to help, he would have stopped. He will never get his wife back, as long as that ship exists, ever. He will never restore her. The odds of one person being restored by destroying other things is non-existent. And again, eventually you will run out of things to destroy. Admittedly, I made my comparison earlier to Earth. The catch here is that on a galactic scale, that's not quite true because no matter what you do to this area of space, at least in the time frame you care about, which is the now, it's not going to really impact the rest of the galaxy which means the rest of the galaxy isn't really going to impact it. At least not until you get into way into the future. And remember, this ship cannot go into the past. In fact, it cannot also go into the future. It is simply uh, unaging, which is one of the big plot holes I talked about. I'll get to that in a minute. So, eventually, it's not just you're going to run out of a galaxy of things to remove. You're going to run out of a sector of things to remove. Now, this is actually kind of hand-waved and explained away, in a good way, I might add. They mention how they spend huge, huge periods of time making calculations for each shot. Now, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense, actually. They should only use that very, very sparingly, because once you do it, there is no undoing it. That is a permanent change to the timeline that has uh, vast-reaching consequences. And they do show the fact that they know they have fast-reaching consequences, so I like that. But again... <laughs> Eventually, you're going to run out of stuff to shoot. And you're just going to keep making it worse and worse and worse. Here's a question for you. Remember when they had that big old 98% restored thing and they were all happy about that? I would have loved for them to go back and be like, yes, we, we've, you know, Anorex is like, yes, fine, you're right. We've restored most of the Krenum Imperium. Let's go talk. Let's, let's, let's go be with our brethren. And they find a Krenum Imperium full of dicks assholes who have been grown fat and glutted on their unchecked and unquestioned expansion. The kind of people who would see nothing wrong with seizing a vessel and taking its crew captives as slave labor. It's, it, they never say it outright, but it's very heavily implied. Simply for the crime of being there. That kind of empire. You know, the bad kind of empire. I'll, now, granted, we, we don't know how good or bad the Krenum Emperor was originally, but I would have loved for them to go back to and see this and just be horrified at the monster they have created. And that being the deciding point that makes him decide, okay, no, we need to go and change this again. I think that would have worked a lot better and also would have added some sympathy factors to Anorax, which, again, the man commits genocide uh, repeatedly. <laughs> um, so, uh... I guess that's all I have to talk about the time weapon uh, for now. Um, Neelix has a quote which I really, really like. It's one of his only scenes. He only has two scenes in this whole episode. His second one is actually pretty good, all things considered. And, and this is just a running theme of season four. Neelix actually acting like Neelix. He approaches Seven, and you know she's like, your journey will be uh, shortened by five years. And Neelix goes there and says, our journey. 
Now, keep in mind, Neelix has reached out to Seven more than once before now. He's not the only one, but, you know, Neelix... Uh, basically, Neelix, Janeway, Tuvok, Harry, and Tom are the people who have really tried to reach out to and, uh, you know, make Seven feel like part of the crew. And I like the fact that that not only speaks to the way his character's been going, but, again, is trying to help bring her into the crew, make her uh, become accustomed to the idea that you're part of us, you're part of our crew, you're part of our family. And that's all he does. No big proverb, no annoying thing. And then the doctor rants for a while, but whatever. <laughs> now, let's talk about the two big plot holes here before Kay writes up a paragraph about it. Um, I'm sorry, I'm name-dropping you all over the place, Kay. I don't even know if you're going to watch this episode. The first big plot thing is on the Krenim ship, on the time ship, they're immune to the passage of time. Now, that's a convenient thing to say because it actually makes no sense if you really think about it. Being immune to the passage of time would be such a fundamental altering of the way we perceive everything that they would not be anything remotely approximating humanoid or even possibly flesh at that point. Because time is how we perceive things. How most beings, and debatably all beings, even in Star Trek, perceive things is via time. One of the only exceptions I can think of ever is actually the prophets who didn't understand the concept of linear time, and yet even still did understand the concept of time, just not linearly. So removing you from time is akin to saying... You know, actually, I don't have anything equivalent to that. I don't have anything that is that high up on the scale, so I can't actually make an analogy or, or a comparison here. So what... Now... <laughs> now, the, the implication is obvious. As they don't age and their ship doesn't age. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm kind of with that. Uh, probably still needs maintenance. I'm not sure where they're getting the parts for that. Um, and yet they still need to eat and drink and sleep and just all sorts... It, it's, it's kind of one of those things that you literally have to let go, and I'm going to let it go. I just had to mention it because it is a colossally huge plot, uh, plot hole. But again, I'm willing to accept a stupid plot if you're doing something good with it. And that brings me to my second point. Why is Voyager in Cranham space? Think about this logically. Now this, unlike the former thing, which is a hand wave, the former thing is not really a plot hole. It's more like, we didn't feel like making this happen, and they need to be immune to time for this plot to happen, so hand wave, okay? No, this is not the droids you're looking for. The second thing is, without question, what I, what I call a traditional plot hole, a.k.a. the writers didn't think it through. In this case, Voyager is in Krenum space. Now, if you'll remember, they had a big discussion on uh, on the new Stellar Cartographer cartography about why they're ending the space of the I forget their names. And they're peaceful, they're non-confrontational, great, we'll be able to negotiate passage, it'll be awesome. Let's go through there. Do note that she was con she was genuinely specifically asking for that. She specifically wanted to know what her odds were of getting through there. Then we have our first time shift. Those people are wiped out of existence. The Krenim are now a, again, an empire of dicks. Complete, over-the-top over abuse of power. Which Janeway would have known going into it, because the Krenim in that reality were always that way. And the Borg would have known about that, the same way they knew about the other ones. So they would have had the information that this is an expansionist, violent, aggressive power which regularly seizes and captures other vessels simply because they're there. They would have known that going into it. So why are they there? You see how this kind of falls. 
and yeah, that's kind of the problem. Now, that can be hand-waved away, but there's no denying that that is a, is a traditional plot hole. That is simply the writers didn't think it through. There are ways to explain around that. I'm, I'm not going to bother. I'm sure my, my viewers will. And I love hearing your comments about that kind of stuff, by the way. But, um, yeah. So, um, wonderful little positive I like about this, these two episodes. They make, especially the first one. A huge deal is made about the fact that the only reason the Krenomara threat is because they're ignoring Voyager shields. Now, this is actually consistent with Star Trek almost on a whole. Star Trek, all the way back to the original series, has always had a perspective where if you have your shields up, then the damage to your ship is relatively minimal. If your shields are down, your ship gets torn up like wet tissue paper because it's literally just the bulkhead in between that and explosive. And that makes perfect sense, which is one of the reasons why the shields were originally invented way back in the original series. And uh, granted, they weren't really shields back then. And one of the reasons why that was actually a major plot point of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, when shields started becoming much more prolific and common. So, yeah, I'm totally with that idea. I just mentioned that because it's, it's really cool that they kept that kind of continuity. And, I might add, when they finally get a uh, type of shield that can defend against their torpedoes piercing them, those torpedoes suddenly aren't an issue. Now, for those of you who don't know, the generally common accepted thing, and this is true in the video games especially, see STO for a good example of this, is that phasers and disruptors do more damage to shields than hull, whereas torpedoes do more damage to hull than shields. And again, that makes sense. It's easier to disperse um, explosive, you know, dynamic energy, or not dynamic, excuse me, kinetic energy, than it is to disrupt, disrupt literal energy, phased energy or disruptive energy. And so the, the shields literally take more damage from the former as opposed to the latter, right? And of course, phasers and disruptors are more or less designed, especially after years of space warfare, to take down a shield so that they can then torpedo them. I mention this because this sheds a fascinating light on the Krenum. And again, this is not a complaint. This makes perfect sense. The Krenum are a one-trick pony. We have torpedoes that can penetrate shields and just blow you to bits. Therefore, we are the dominant power and never see the need to equip our ships with any other weapons ever. And they don't. The Krenum Imperium, you know, the, the second timeline, or technically the third timeline, that they see in this one, is very clearly an Imperium that has total reliance on their chroniton torpedoes. And almost nothing else. In fact, they never fire anything else, ever. And so those torpedoes, once you finally find a way to shield against them, they don't know what to do. There's even a great scene where they are following Voyager, but not firing. Their weapons aren't even on because they have no idea what to make of this. They are, they are just like, huh? You know, I loved that. It showed really well the arrogance that the, this new dick Imperium has become, and it really shows the way their technological progression works. Because if you think about it, that one trick is an impressive trick. It is very unlikely that most races would have the ability to adapt their shields to that kind of a thing. And let's not forget, it took a long time, a period of weeks, with Voyager, Technobabble Central, in order to figure out a way in order to defend against that. And even then, it took Seven, also known as Kess, in order to actually come up with the brilliant way to actually make that work. And even that required them actually having an unexploded torpedo to learn its exact resonance or frequency or whatever, in order to then track their shields for that. So that's like a long shot on top of a long shot on top of a long shot with time in order to come up with a defense against this sort of thing. So again, it makes perfect sense that the Krenum would just dominate the hell out of the space because no one else has those long shots on their on their side. Um, the whole episode, I'm just gonna, I made a note right here. It's right about the time uh, when, uh, right before that great, great episode. The whole episode has a great feel to it for me. 
I've talked before about the idea that you know certain things just fit Tetris block into your brain. This is one for me. The tension and drama of this episode felt a lot more tangible than usual, and it was very upfront and personal about the way it was dealing with things. And I have to point off that one of the biggest reasons for that is this episode is is fulfilling on the premise of Voyager. Let's recap, shall we? Voyager is in hostile territory, desperately trying to survive under near-constant attack with low resources and low supplies and trying to negotiate and work together in a survivalist situation against long odds. Yeah. You see, we see where I'm going with this. There's a reason why a lot of people, myself included, think that the show would have been much more interesting if this format had been taken for the series as a whole. This is a good time to bring up that four-parter and series-long thing. It is a bit of a shame. In fact, it's a huge shame because that the 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 notes that had been taken for the Year of Hell, which were then truncated down to the four-parter of Hell, which which was already mostly written, were then truncated down to this episode. Think about that for a moment. Not the two-parter. They wrote the second part in a vacuum, like like has been the standard for Voyager since, well, Best of Both Worlds. So in other words, before Voyager even became a thing. So they didn't actually write part, part two of Year of Hell. They wrote, they condensed all of what they had already written for Year of Hell down into part one. And I think that's the reason it works so well, because they had time to really think about long-term offense and consequences, and a lot of stuff happens in a fairly short period of time to really show what's going on, and those time jumps and the little day thing at the bottom really helps you feel like this is a survival journey. This is, you know, as things are getting worse, it is logical to jump forward 30 days and see, okay, now here's how bad things have gotten. If this had been done properly, these events would have occurred over the course of like 20 episodes, or 4 episodes. Instead, they occur over one, and the, the difference is staggering. But I feel like that's one of the reasons why there's so much honest tension and genuine drama is because it never stops hitting you in the face. The whole episode is a constant build, a build of tension, a build of the, of the stakes, a build of the drama, a build of, oh God, oh God, things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse, until they finally end with the, uh, again, excuse me for skipping way ahead. In fact, this is actually on my second page here. They, they finally end with the climax of the ship trying to go to warp, damaging it. Now, I know that sounds weird, but that's a wonderful thing, especially for fans of the show, because going to warp has been such a mundane aspect of Star Trek since the original series. Warp drive is why Star Trek exists. It's one of the reasons the Omega Particle was so dangerous, because it would remove that. But seriously, though, without warp, there is no Star Trek, because warp is how they go faster than light. And if you don't go faster than light, you're screwed, <laughs> as far as intergalactic anything, right? I mean, this is duh. So, the mere fact that they're doing what is literally the most mundane thing that has ever been in Star Trek, going to warp, and that's what damages the ship almost beyond repair, that was impacting. And that great climax also coincides with the other thing. The ship breaking apart, which then leads to the crew breaking apart, and her having that great speech of we all need to get on our pods and escape because... We, we've failed. We have broken apart. We are dying. So, really great build and, 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 and expression there. Um, let's cut up to the next scene here. There's an expression the Doctor has. Robert Picardo is such a great actor. Oh my god. he It's harder than you'd think to do small, subtle things with your expression. It's easy to act shocked while going over the top. Yeah! You know. 
but act shocked from a from a quiet perspective. I'm not going to do it for you right now because I'm not in acting mode. But you know, a slight change of the jaw and maybe the eyelids pupillating just and that little clenching around the eyes, tiny little changes. Like that's how shock actually looks. You know, you know, just tiny little things. And on television, especially, you can do that because the camera is right here, so it catches those things. So. Robert Picardo's expression as he gets into that hatch and he looks over and he sees those two people running and you hear the t camera timer counting down. That is a horribly beautiful moment. That was terrible. I mean, you can see on his face the total realization of the fact that they're not going to make it. And he knows they're not going to make it. And he doesn't close the door immediately, even knowing that. You can see on his face, he knows they're not going to make it. He knows they're going to die. And yet he can't quite bring himself to close it. Remember everything I talked about back in Revulsion, about how the doctor was at his core, a doctor, a healer, someone who wants to help people? You can see on him that faint, futile hope that they will make it somehow. And the knowledge and understanding that they won't. And the confliction between the two comes up beautifully later when the doctor is talking with Tom and he's lying to himself, trying to convince himself that sort of, that sort of cold objectivity is the best possible way to deal with that. That's one of the uh, plot threads that was actually dropped for this. It was cut out because, you know, obviously when you shrink that much stuff into one episode, you have to cut some stuff out. There's also a plot arc about Chakotay in part two, which I'll talk about when I get to part two, that was also cut. Um... But yeah, that, there was going to be a whole plot thread about the Doctor trying to come to grips with the cold calculus versus his own innate desire to care and his empathy and sympathy. And it's all over his face on that one scene, and it's just so well done. Oh my god, that, that hit. That cut. Um, then Chakotay gives an option to Janeway. He, he says, let's all get in our escape pods and try to, to cross the Crenum Imperium in tiny little ships, which are easy to track and have no defenses. Um, we're going to name that option uh, Option Retard, because it's incredibly stupid. <laughs> no, seriously, that's dumb. Um, there's a scene shortly thereafter where Harry and Bolana are uh, having a trivia match. Again, this was a thing that was supposed to be fleshed out more. Originally, there was going to be a bit of a resurgence of their friendship. No, no romantic intense. She's pretty clearly with Tom here. But uh, if you'll remember, Harry and Bolana at several points in the past, have actually gotten along pretty well. And there, it was supposed to be kind of a, uh, a touching up of that, reminding us that they were still good friends, that kind of a thing. So I like the little trivia game they're playing, because it, it makes a lot of sense, and it's just a nice little human moment of misery, I think is the word I want to use, uh, amidst all that, as they're trying to distract themselves with what's going on. Uh, I mentioned the pacing already, I mentioned the Kesta Seven things, I mentioned the Doctor thing. So Tim Russ was actually really happy that Tuvok got blinded in this episode. I mentioned I'd talk about this again, so I'm going to talk about it now. Blinding Tuvok... I feel worked, but wouldn't have worked in the long term. Let me explain what I mean. When you do that kind of fundamental change to a character, you have to consider the long-term effects, not just the short-term. Now, in the short-term, it worked great. It was impacting. It really... It, the reveal of him being blinded was actually really well done as he's shaving. And, you know... And they don't even say it at first. You just get the impression because of the way Tim Russ is acting. And then he tries to reach for the thing. And that's when it becomes obvious he can't see really well done stuff. And that is like, oh my god, Tuvok is blind. Now, just to point this out, the Federation hasn't cured blindness. They have 
the visor, and the implants. However, it's also worth noting they didn't have the implants before Voyager left. Remember, Geordi didn't get his implants until First Contact, what happened, which happened uh, during Season... Uh, that would have been three, during Season 3 of Voyager. So they've been out for two-plus years, and that's a lot of time for medical history to move forward. You see where I'm going with this. In other words, with the technology they have on Voyager, curing Tuvok's blindness is not going to happen. So Tuvok is blind, possibly forever. Now that's impacting in the short term, but it presents a problem in the long term because you have to, and this is what I was talking about earlier with the Elseworld problem, you have to from then on consider all your stories now that there's been a fundamental change in the status quo and that status quo cannot hamper your ability to tell stories with that character. That's the catch. You have to come up with, with something that is sufficiently impacting without hampering your own ability to use the character, without limiting them to, this is now my character. My character is now being defined by this disability or this change to me. And blinding someone is a pretty damn big change. That being said, I do like the fact that there's a tactile mode on the consoles. I know that sounds weird, but again, given the fact that blindness is a thing that still happens and a thing we haven't cured, I do like the fact that that's a thing built into the ship, and it makes sense to me. That was probably as, as early as the Enterprise D kind of a thing. Um, Tim Russ, though, uh, found it incredibly challenging playing someone's blind because he, he developed tricks about how to do eye contact kind of things. And they had to do several takes on a lot of his scenes because he kept looking, and he wasn't supposed to because he's blind. Um, he actually expressed desire that he wished they had basically done something like this to him. So he literally couldn't see. So the actor would not be able to see, and therefore he'd be able to play someone blind. Now, this is interesting to note because Tim Russ was not upset about being blinded. He just wanted to actually be blind. He literally wanted to walk around and act like this. That says something about the actor, I think, in general. <sighs> There's a great scene in this episode. It's probably my favorite moment of Anorak's character building, uh, in Part 1 specifically. He, uh, they've, they've restored the Krenum Empire to the Krenum Dicks, and he's decided to, you know, we're going to go ahead and wipe out this entire species to do it. No hesitation on the wiping out the species thing, but what does happen is he gets there, and, you know, they've done the calculations at Ready Fire, and he hesitates. And, again, Kurtwood, Kurtwood Smith does a great job of this. He hesitates, and he closes his eyes just for a moment, and then says, Fire. That is a great moment, and astonishingly character-building. Um, I mentioned before, uh, again, in Revulsion, if you're going to use a guest star who's only there for an episode or two, you have to really do subtle stuff to flesh out their character and leave it just, you know, leave, leave it for the audience to interpret. In my interpretation, what he's doing there is, again, no, no sympathy or empathy for the millions of lives he's wiping out, but rather, he knows he's risking. He knows that this is the closest they've ever gotten the most successful they've ever been. And he knows, as I mentioned before, there's no turning back. Once you fire that weapon, whatever happens is done. You cannot undo it. All you can do is destroy something else. So he knows that this is a huge gamble. A huge gamble. And he doesn't know how to deal with that at first. And and so it just... It's, it's that... It just, you know, rip the band-aid off, you know, and you just kind of tense up a bit. Really well done, my man. It is ironic in its own wonderful way that they develop shields that are immune to the temporal blah 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 of the Krenum Empire, and that renders them immune to the changes in the time stream. If I can explain what that means for a moment, 
it means that the Krenim Empire has never actually advanced past their one-trick pony, which again goes back to what I was talking about earlier, and especially is uh, indicative of a very decadent and uh, stagnant uh, civilization, which again, I could just picture them going back to it and being like, oh my god, you know, because it means that the time ship's weapon is built in the same manner that the Chronoton torpedoes are. Now, remember, the time ship was built forever ago. I forget the time. They say it in episode two, but it's, it's centuries. And this, that ship, and in centuries of time, of, of actual time passing, the Krenim have never developed their Chronoton technology past what they already had. And again, why would they need to, right? And I just find that fascinating because if they had the capacity to change that or update that, they might have actually been able to, you know, do something against Voyager. But instead, all they could do is try to overwhelm it in a more literal sense. And then they found out that Voyager's faster, which, yeah. Although, ironically, Voyager is uh, so dilapidated by that point. And that's, of course, the other reason it's ironic. Voyager is finally immune to the changes of the timeline, which means they're stuck with the timeline they were in, which is the one where they're being, getting the crap beat out of them for months. Oops. I find it interesting because a fully powered Voyager would probably have ripped the time ship in half if they could have turned off the, uh, the time shields. But I digress. Fun little question for you guys, a little bit of a theoretical. Was Voyager responsible for the fact that their, their calculations were wrong in the time stream? There's no way to actually be sure about that. But I find the idea interesting that they weren't. They might have introduced a ripple effect to it. But at the same time, I can't see that actually being true. Because remember, no one else had any knowledge or memory. The credit that were there or the otherwise were basically unaffected by Voyager's existence. Voyager's existence didn't really have any impact on the Empire as a whole. So a change that was supposed to restore everything, instead reducing the Krenim to nothing because Voyager happened to be there and still exist, I, I, I don't quite buy that. By contrary, however, there is another way to think of that, and maybe the, the time shields of Voyager literally affected the time shockwave. Now that has some own horrible implications, because it means the shockwave itself is what's actually changing the time stream. Two questions about that. Uh, number one, what's the range on that shockwave? How far out would it go, right? It might have a limited range. It might explain why only this one region of space has been affected by this. Or it may just keep going forever, which is kind of horrifying when you think about it. Because given how slowly that thing moves, which is very, very slowly from a galactic scale, that means in hundreds, thousands, and millions of years, parts of space will still be getting hit by that shockwave. I think it's more likely the shockwave is much more limited in range, which brings me to my next point. I find the idea fascinating that the shockwave is the propitiation of, of the time change, because let's say, so it goes out and everything in here is, you know, oh, these species never existed, these species never existed, and so we've got this expanding bubble of this, whatever it is they wanted, you know, the Krenum being restored to more power or whatever, and then it hits Voyager, and then suddenly that stops. And so, a picture, if you will, here's the point at which it hits Voyager, and there's this high, giant circle, sectors wide, light years across, that is suddenly altered utterly and fundamentally because there was an aber aberration in the field. And now, it's the other timeline. So just picture all these worlds here, which are basically part of one timeline, and then it suddenly cuts off to another timeline. Imagine how horrible that would be if that happened in mid-planet. Like if it was the, time, the wave was crossing a planet, and then the alteration happened, and then it kept going, and now we have a third, fourth, eighth, whatever timeline. Just some food for thought. Now, admittedly, 
this is an example of the writers saying, no, just go with it. You know, this is artistic license thing. The same reason, with, same thing with the time ship being immune to time. It's not a plot hole. It's a we don't feel like thinking about this, so just go with it kind of a thing. <laughs> but I digress. Uh, final note here, because I already said the, the note about the climax. I really like Anorax's apology to the crew. It's horrible. Because he's literally telling you, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to do worse than kill you. I'm going to erase you from time. And yet he apologizes for it. He didn't have to do that. He also didn't have to take some of their crew on board. That's the other thing that I found interesting. And the implication is very strongly there that he does that, not because he thinks Voyager, he's going to need them against Voyager in the future, because he didn't anticipate Voyager was going to survive. He does that so that some aspect of them will be salvaged. Remember all those foods he kept on board? Remember the, the lock of hair? He keeps trinkets of the worlds that they've, uh, that they've wiped out, and they have a transporter. So the implication is that for every place they've been encountering, they've been beaming up this or that from that world or that society so that some aspect of it may be preserved. And that sounds very in keeping with both his character and the idea of the time ship as a whole. So they literally beam aboard Chakotay and, T and Tom... And the way he gives the order, too, is very mundane, like it's a normal business for him to do that. So I don't think that was out of the ordinary. I think that's a common thing. It also brings up the question, especially given how huge the time ship is, how many other people from many other races that don't exist anymore are still up there, you know? Probably imprisoned because they're upset about the fact that their entire species was wiped out. I don't know, just spitballing. Um, but the other thing I find fascinating about the apology is it felt really heartfelt. Like, he genuinely is sad about the fact that he's about to kill you. He's still going to do it. And that's the thing I like about Anorax and, his, and, and Smith's portrayal of him in general. He is definitely an evil bastard. But he is not simply Darth Malak. There are layers to him. There are subtleties to him. There's more to his character than I'm evil, ha-ha, twirl mustache. And I like that. That's it for Year of Hell Part 1. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and start watching Part 2 right now, actually. I've got some work to do. Um, so I will be seeing you guys at the next one. The conduits on deck five are overloading. 30 seconds till they blow. Keep moving. Hurricane. Please hurry. Okay. That's it. Warning. Structural collapse in 20 seconds. 15 seconds. Warning. Structural collapse in 10 seconds. Warning. Structural collapse in five, four, 